how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to episode 385, where I speak with Alex Bach and Daniel Powell, the co-presidents of the production company Irony Point. The Peabody and Emmy Women Production Company has signed a multi-year production commitment overall deal with Netflix, with first look component for projects developed by Irony Point. In this interview, they talk about some of their current projects, like Inside Amy Schumer, I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson, which just got picked up for a third season, Ugly Americans, and that damn Michael Che, among others, including one that is just coming out in upcoming weeks. Uh, so listen to this to find out how they choose projects, what they look for in a project, how they work together as two different types of producers and showrunners, and how you can reach out to people like this with your scripts and ideas for pitch meetings. I grew up in Florida and went to, had a very normal upbringing, went to the University of Florida, which didn't have any kind of film program. And then I kind of fell in love with traveling after graduating from college. And I was like a ski bum in New Zealand. And I was living in the town where they filmed Lord of the Rings. And I just thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be so cool to get paid to travel to exotic locations to make movies like Lord of the Rings, which I loved. And um, then after I got done traveling, I moved to New York and fell into my first real job, which was on a Bollywood film shooting in New York. And I thought I'm in heaven and kind of the rest is, is history. Uh, yeah. And I went to school actually, when I went to college, I initially was going to go into government and politics. Thank God I did not. Um, but I started writing for the Campus Humor magazine and um, and that became frankly more interesting to me than my studies. Um, you know, and uh, I ended up interning at Conan when he was still when it was still late night at 30 Rock. Um, and I changed my major to, to film theory. You know, it, the school I went to didn't have like a production, you know, film school, production oriented film school. Um, but I studied film theory and and so ended up moving to New York with the goal of working in independent film because it was still very much like the center of the independent film world when I graduated. Mm. Um, but when a job fell through, I told the temping firm that I also had written comedy and worked for the humor magazine in college. And it just happened that there was an opening at Comedy Central at the time. So they got me in at Comedy Central and that sort of started you know, a, a multi-decade long relationship with Comedy Central and Viacom and um, led to a lot of the stuff I've worked on over the past 20 years. Hmm. Did you guys have any early mentors early on? I spoke with, I mean, I know, um, so I spoke with Moses Storm, who kind of got mentored by Conan. He's famously known for pulling people aside. I'm not sure if that happened, but was there anybody early on who kind of like pushed you to maybe cut any safety nets you had and go into this full time? Um, I mean, uh, one of the, the first person I met when I started temping at Comedy Central was Jesse Klein, um, who's, uh, at the time was just a coordinator in development, 
Um, later, I became her assistant. And much later, um, you know, I came back to Comedy Central as a junior development executive when she was still there. She eventually left to become a full-time comedy writer and stand-up comic and now has written two like bestsellers and mm. is show running Vanessa Bayer's show on Showtime. But um, she was the one who sort of, when it, it was time for me to decide between taking a VP contract to Comedy Central or leaving to become a producer, she told me that, you know, and very correctly that she felt that I would be much happier on the producing side. And and so she's always given me guidance. And then a few years after she gave me that advice, we were co-show running with Amy um, inside Amy Schumer. Uh, and so I got to work with her for years on that. And she still just always gives, you know, incredible advice to me and has been hugely influential in my career. Hmm. Alex, what about you? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'd say the closest thing I had to a mentor was I, I came up under a line producer named Mac Brown, who did like scent of a woman and he line produced the departed. And mm. he's like a really big old school, New York and LA line producer. And he just always said like, you don't want to be me. You want to be the person that hires me. Like, and he was like, if you want to produce, like go produce some stuff, you know? So off of that, I was just like, all right, I'm just going to go produce my friend's stuff for free. You know, like they can't fire me if they're not paying me. So <laughs> I think he was sort of the one that kind of pushed me. Yeah. For those like unfamiliar with like kind of the break-in stories, I mean, is it enough to do a few things and kind of get on IMDb and then they can see you? Like what is, what was kind of your both experiences with like getting noticed and that credibility to get the next job and the next job? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Alex, you go. So, uh, I just think it's like sheer will, like it's volume and it's, it's, it's the will to work a hundred hours. I mean, I know that industry is changing, but for me, it was very much just doing a decade of a hundred hours a week, like, you know, and just always saying like, I'll do that job and this one. And then eventually um, when you have sort of surpassed even your own expectations for your capacity to do stuff, um, then sort of like taking the leap into a slightly different arena just feels more like um, like an endurance challenge than actually like a talent thing. So yeah, uh, that answers the question. But I mean, you know, it's it's tough because it's like, look, when you start out in this business, generally the jobs that are open to you are entry level jobs, PA assistant, things like that. And as you rise through the business, you're sort of constantly forced to get people to change their perception of you and and sort of force them to look at you the way you want to be seen. So if you want to be a writer, but you get in this business and maybe, you know, you've been a PA, you've been an AP, obviously writing jobs are incredibly competitive. You know, there's so many people who want to be that, that just saying it is not nearly enough or saying like, hey, keep me in mind for like a writer's assistant job there, which can be even more competitive than writing jobs because there's only one writer's assistant for every, you know, 10 writers in a writer's room. So the trick is generally like even when you're working your day job, it is just doing your best to like study and hone your craft. And also, like Alex said, just making stuff like if you want to be seen as a director, you have to go out and call in favors and direct things and put it out there 
on YouTube and things like that and just work on getting better as a director so that when you tell, you know, a producer that you meet on set, oh, I want to be a director, you can send them something that you've directed and then start to, you know, get them to change their perception of you as just a PA or just a coordinator or what have you. So how did you guys, you guys are the co-presidents of a production company now. How did you meet? How did this kind of, what's kind of that beginning story as well? I had been, um, I had transitioned from big budget production to line producing and then producing kind of like micro budget indie features in New York. And, um, you know, the low budget film world and the comedy world are sort of, pretty similar and you get some overlap mostly because the budgets are kind of can be in the same zone and Dan had um co-written and was co-directing his first feature and he was looking for a producer and I just kind of like raised my hand for it and did a bunch of work to kind of convince him that I would be amazing at it and so I produced Dan's first feature Bex and then he convinced me sort of like two weeks before shooting to roll right into, I think it was four business days later, right into producing a um, half hour comedy series, uh, which was pretty much insane. And so <laughs> after that, we were like, we've been through hell. <laughs> we've been through hell and we still like each other. And we have com complementary skill sets, whereas I lean a bit more, um, production, logistics, business oriented. And Dan has a great head for all those things, but he's a writer, director, showrunner and development exec. So. Yeah. When I, you know, irony point before Alex was essentially my vanity card on shows I produced. It was a one person company and, you know, I had never really entertained making it anything bigger than that. And until, you know, around, uh, you know, third, fourth season of Inside Amy Schumer, um, I started to get approached with things like, hey, can you help not just produce this, but also handle like the production infrastructure as well. And I'm like, I'm not a line producer. I, I did some production management at Comedy Central, but I'm more a creative producer. But when I met Alex and after we did the movie and, and that miniseries, it just felt like there was, there were enough sort of overtures that it felt like, well, clearly there's some sort of vacuum in New York City for a company that does sort of smaller to mid-budget projects and once I met Alex it felt like all right now I have you know someone that I trust that I work well with that can fill in the sort of gaps in my experience and my knowledge and so we teamed up and you know we kept the name Irony Point because it had some credits that established our bona fides um, and we bought some you know we acquired some physical infrastructure and we started building from there and we started with like digital you know web series and small pilots for comedy central and then expanded to like full series for netflix and and that was 2017 and then we've been doing it for about five years now how do you guys think about so i've asked a few people this comedy is so specific like almost in a way that movies have gone away from because movies are trying to be global and action comedy that's kind of the big thing you work with Michael Che, you're working with Amy Schumer, Tim Robinson. They all have very unique sense of humor. How do you guys think about risk and then producing comedy? Because Tim Robinson stuff, it seems so specific, you know, like, how do you guys think about risk in the comedic world? I mean, to me, it's just, you know, one of the big sort of 
the driving principles of this company is that we're very talent oriented. And most of the shows we've done have a sort of singular piece of talent at the forefront, whether it, like you said, Amy, Tim, Che, and obviously they're all comedians, but they're very different comedically in terms of their approach to comedy. They're also different in their sort of approach to how they write and how they produce. So to us, it's like, okay, as their producers, how do we provide the best support system for them? Because every show is different. Mm -hmm. So that basically, you know, look, all of these shows have limited resources. <laughs> it's not like we have an endless, a blank check to make them. So with each show, you have to look at it and be like, all right, for the money that we're being given, what is the best version of this show, um, the, you know, of the, of the scripts that Tim and Amy and, you know, Michael have written? What's the sort of best version of this that we can make for the resources at our disposal while also making sure that it's an environment of like respect and that we're looking out for the crew's safety and everything that's that's important that's not necessarily on camera so it's a good experience for everyone so you know it, it is comedically like you know are we necessarily looking at we, we take on projects where we believe in the talent and we're just like we got your back um in terms of production risk it's it's really making sure that we're looking at it from a standpoint of you know crew safety has to come first respect on set has to come first and we'll do the best version of, of the show we can while trying to keep everyone as happy and and uh content as possible given you know that is always stressful right um do you guys when you're going into some of these shows do you already know where they're going to end up like are you leaning this is a netflix show this is a hbo show or are you are you like where does that come out in the process uh, I mean, you know, uh, a lot of the times we're brought on to help produce a show after it's already been set up. So I think You Should Leave was already set up at Netflix, mm -hmm. but then they were having trouble finding producers who could do it for the budget that they wanted to do it for. And and we raised our hands. Um, similar situation with that Dan Michael Che. Um, Inside Amy Schumer was a little different. Um, again, it was sort of in the very early days of Irony Point, but I was... Uh, producer that knew Amy from my time as a development exec at Comedy Central. She'd gotten a blind pilot deal. So she didn't know what the show was. She just had a pilot commitment and she hired me to help her develop the concept and then produce it once we move, move forward, when, you know, once the creative was approved by the network. We do do development and we do develop projects and take them out to buyers. And, and that process is very different. It's, you know, you work with talent. We work with talent that we really feel like we want to be working with we help them develop what ideally is their sort of dream show and then we sort of decide okay who are the buyers that are appropriate for this concept and we take it to them and you know obviously it's extremely competitive and most of the stuff doesn't move forward but when it does it's 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 great when you guys are, are are you at a point where you're being approached by um kind of novice screenwriters like are you getting lots of screenplays in if so what do those look like are there some pet peeves you have about receiving screenplays things you don't want to see things you do want to see i want to know what alex says about this <laughs> um well i think because we're known for comedy we get we get sent oddly a lot of script i'd say a lot probably relative to other producers a lot of scripts that sometimes you just have to wonder like should was this written as a sketch that they just carried on for 90 pages so i i think um a lot of times that's sort of the thing where it's like yeah this is a fun parody but 
do people really want to sit with this for 90 pages? And I, and at times you're like, I totally understand why you thought of us for this because it's maybe on brand for comedy for maybe it's in line with our brand of comedy. But having said that, I think you really got to look at a, a feature and do something different than with a feature than what you would do with say a packet submission, you know, a writing submission for a comedy series. And so, um, yeah, I'd say that's lately been kind of the big thing. I mean, I think to me, one of the biggest things is, you know, look, obviously a screenplay is so different from a film. It's a completely different medium. It's essentially like instructions for a film, which is, you know, sometimes they can be very dry to read. The best screenwriters make it very fun to read in the stage direction as opposed to just sort of giving, you know, dry stereo instructions for the director. Um, I mean, I think for us, a lot of time it's like if we if we have a relationship with the writer or the writer director and we just trust their sensibility and we've trust what they've done in the past, then you sort of look at it through that lens where uh, to give an, a couple examples, um, we helped, you know, provide some financing for Bridie Elliott's um, directorial debut, Clara's Ghost, which was a, you know, went to Sundance. And when I read the script, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'm like, look, I don't, I can't fully wrap my head around this, but I had seen her <clears throat> short film that had gone to Sundance previously and, and just loved it and just loved like the unique visual style she brought to it and just knew her as a performer and just, you know, thought, all right, this is a very special talent who's, you know, trying to get her first feature made. And she had enough like incredible cast attached that it just felt like, all right, you know, look, there's always a risk in investing in a film, both, you know, financially and creatively, but it just felt like this is someone that we believe in and we wanted to be, you know, um, we wanted to help get their project on its feet. Um, there's another project um, that we, you know, Alex and I produced a movie called Scare Me that was Josh Rubin's directorial debut. He also wrote and starred in it. And that was a situation where we'd known Josh for years. We loved him as a performer and a writer, and he'd been directing commercials that we loved and stuff with college humor that we loved. And so we basically told him, like, start bringing us stuff and let's talk until we can figure something out. And frankly, it, it, I think it was scare me was like the third script he sent us where the first two we appreciated. But we were like, mm, it's probably not for us or, you know, we're, we're having trouble wrapping our head around it. But when we read scare me, it just felt like, OK, this is both producible from a budget level and really interesting, has something to say, is a great vehicle for Josh as both a, a performer and a director. And so that one was one where the, it was inexpensive enough where we all just sort of collectively decided along with Josh's managers, like, let's just do it. Let's just make it. We'll figure it out. We'll get the money together and we'll just commit to doing it. And, and that's how we proceeded. And a lot of it was just based on our trust in Josh. And I'll just add what, what I think is interesting and what I've learned kind of, you know, from doing more TV after doing indie films is that, you know, in films, it's like, I know so many film producers who don't even look at a deck before they read the script. They just read the script. That's the very first thing they'll look at. On the TV side, we will often partner with writers who we have read a script of theirs that we love. But what's kind of interesting now that we see more and more is that when we're, we may sign on to a project and develop a project at Irony Point that we've read a pilot script for and we love. But then when you're taking it out to sell it, 
it's very likely that you're not sharing the script with the like studio or network execs who you're pitching to. And so that's a very, I think, just interesting thing between the two worlds is um, it, it winds up feeling like, you know, it's more about the pitch in TV mm -hmm. and more about really selling them on the world and the vision. Whereas in film, I think um, it's so much more about great filmmaker, great script, you know, mm. and of course talent too, but you know, to begin with. And obviously you guys both have years of experiences, but for those listeners who are kind of new screenwriters, what are some common things they could do to present scripts that, aren't as high budget like one thing famously is it's easy to write a montage but that's very expensive to shoot anything like that that comes to mind that like people kind of kill themselves out of the gate a little bit i mean i think the number one thing is page count like you should be able to you know it's like i i understand that many many amazing screenwriters you know write 130 page plus screenplays but if you want it to be on a budget you gotta keep the page count very tight yeah i guarantee you like anytime someone gets sent a script that they want to read the first thing they do is they look at the page count and then get annoyed if it's over like 120 <laughs> pages you know um we all we're all very busy we have a lot to do and you know it takes time but it also is part of it is like the efficiency in storytelling it's like yeah i mean a there is a cost per page but there's also like you know, you should be able to tell a feature story in 90 pages or so. And obviously that could expand or contract. But man, I remember when we did the table read for Bex, the movie that Alex produced where we met and we um, it was a very small indie feature. So a lot of our cast was flying in. We really didn't have them in person. This is pre pandemic. So Zoom table reads weren't as much of a thing. We had them like three days before we started principal photography. And I think the script was probably about 115 pages and we read it aloud and we just realized right away, like, man, we overwrote so many of these scenes. There's so much unnecessary or redundant dialogue. And in like the 48 hours before we started principal photography, Liz and I, Liz Rohrbaugh, the co-writer, we just went through and just like shredded like you know, scenes in terms of like chopping di away unnecessarily di unnecessary dialogue. You know, look, I think it's a common thing where you sort of have the characters saying their feelings <laughs> and sort of speaking the subtext out loud. And then you realize like, oh, this is all going to be in the performance. I don't need to have them saying it. It's going to it's going to come through in subtext and in performance. And so I would say and that that sort of leads me to the next thing, which would be read read these things out loud with your friends before you send them to be read by others, because it is such a difference hearing it out loud versus reading it on the page. And you can learn so much by hearing it. Like the, the show I'm working on now, um, Life and Beth, uh, which is for Hulu with Amy Schumer and Michael Sarah, we're in the writer's room. We're actually finishing up the writer's room for season two. We will read these scripts aloud six, seven, eight times over the course of the process, sometimes with the cast, but usually it's the writers just doing internal table reads and you learn so much by hearing it out loud as opposed to like reading it and giving notes hmm. what Another, else have you got sorry go ahead oh i was just gonna mention dan i don't this might be low-hanging fruit but for me i think you know just simply like as dan mentioned earlier just like 
enjoyable stage direction. Just like, I, I think it's more than just the dialogue. It's really understanding sort of like the vibe and being entertained by the the full read. I think it's, it's hard to underestimate that um, whatever you put forth, you're being judged on, whether it's going to be on the screen or not, you know? Yeah, I would also say like, very quickly, I mean, like, if there are ways to step outside of, like, the format of the screenplay in a way where it's, like, it's clear that you know the rules and it's clear that you're very familiar with how to write a screenplay, but, like, if, like, you know, you insert, like, an illustration or something on, like, you know, a page or you, you know, do something unconventional in the way that you write the screenplay that shows, like, I know the rules, but I'm breaking them on purpose. And it's like, makes it a pleasure to read. You know, one thing we did on, um, uh, I, I work a little bit in, in the comic book space. And so one of the, the a film that we're putting together right now, rather than send the script to um, just a script out, we, we basically did the first 25 minutes of the movie as like a graphic novel. Mm. Uh, so that it's sort of, you could really look at it and see how it plays out visually and see, see it more as like from the visual side of things, obviously it's still a different medium, but it's far less expensive than shooting the first 25 minutes as like a short film or something. Um, so we did that and, and it's been really helpful in, in terms of like helping people wrap their head around the aesthetic of the film and the general pacing and everything like that before. And then of course they read the full screenplay. Can you guys tell when someone like, cause you're a lot of the things you're describing, the magic comes from putting the hours into it. Can you guys tell when someone's not fully committed? Is that pretty obvious in a, in a reading that, oh, they really don't know maybe where this series is going or like, like they really have to put everything out there to get their script noticed. Would you kind of agree to that? I think sometimes you really don't know. Like there are many times where I'll get sent a script from a filmmaker. There are times I'll get sent a script from a filmmaker and I know the filmmaker is a talented writer, director, and I'll read it and I'll say like, is this like, did they just like write this in when they were stoned, like over the course of an evening? You know, I can think of like some big filmmakers who I've thought that same question about too. But, you know, and then you sort of probe and probe and probe over time slowly and you realize like, the process, regardless of the process, they're standing behind this work. And I believe in this filmmaker. So there's a, there's sometimes a leap of faith, I would say, and believing like, okay, this is not, I don't necessarily think this is exactly where I, it, this needs to be, but I know their body of work and I know them well enough to know that potentially for this project that like it's one step in the process. So I think it's just a matter of, of articulating your vision when, when being pressed on the material, you know? I mean, you know, it, it's very, very different when you're developing a series concept versus a feature concept. I mean, it's two very different ways of telling a story, you know, with a series concept, assuming that we're talking about like an ongoing series, not like a limited series where it's just similar to a feature arc, just, you know, over a longer period of time and told more, you know, episodically in chapters, 
you know, you, you kind of generally go into the network with like the first season fleshed out because frankly, to, to then flesh out more than one season is pretty pres- presumptuous because, you know, the network is paying the bills. They're going to want to weigh in on the creative. And by the time you assemble a writer's room, write out the whole first season, you're going to find that a lot of the things that you kind of came in with have changed and evolved. And so if you get way too far ahead of yourself, the stuff that you've thought of for, for the second season and third season before you've even wrote the first season just becomes moot. Um, I would say generally if you're developing a show that's pretty high concept and maybe it feels like, well, where do, how does this sustain past a single season? Like where does it even go? It feels like you could only do one season. Then you're, you at least want to be able to speak to, well, here's how, here's where it might go in a second season. Here's where it might go in a third season so that they can understand how it can sustain. Cause most networks don't want to spend a bunch of money on, on something that, can't go past a season. They want it to be a success and continue to either bring in subscribers or bring in ad sales. But generally it's it's more of like, you don't need to like have story ideas for season two. You just need to be able to tell them this is where it could go in just a couple sentences so that they sort of know that it can sustain. I think we're out of time. Is there anything we got that we missed or do you guys want to share anything about current projects you're working on? I just don't know how much we can really yeah sometimes we're a little bit at the mercy of like uh we're, yeah. we're not sure what we're allowed to say in terms of when it's going to air we're yeah. shooting I, I can say that you know we're it's been announced that shooting a third season of i think you should leave which should be on sometime next year um we're going to start shooting uh a second season of life and death which should be on hulu sometime next year as well um and, and yeah and uh we're working doing- on stuff with yeah Oh yeah, we're doing, um, Julio Torres has a series for HBO that we're producing with Fruit Tree and Three Arts and we shoot that early next year, which should be pretty, pretty fun. Um, And and we got a bunch of stuff cooking as well. Yeah, Julio's another singular talent like Tim and and Michael and Amy and we're just very excited to, we're, we're huge fans and so we're excited to help him out with his next show. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the show. So many great lessons on screenwriting here. If you're looking for some more information, though, some more about the craft of writing for television, uh, we have a new course called Script Mastermind, where we have 21 of our proven experts telling you how to write for television, how to write a screenplay, how to break in, things like that. Uh, This includes shows of Courtney Levitt, Judd Apatow, also the writers of shows like Handmaid's Tale, Mosquito Coast, Hunters, Solar Opposites, Resident Alien, WandaVision, the list goes on and on. Check that out. Uh, You can get this all right now for $1 at scriptmastermind.com slash television. That is the television screenwriting masterclass. It is at scriptmastermind.com slash television. We'll see you next time with a new episode.